Good morning. I'm so happy to see you all this morning. How's my mic working? There we go. Well, this morning my message is called Dwelling Outside the Gates, talking about the gates of Eden. But being up here at Pine Springs always makes me think a little bit about Eden. It's so beautiful, the sky is so clear, the smell of pine trees, it's just a glorious place to be. So I'm very glad to be here with all of you. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord, you know this has been a morning of prayer already, but I feel so much the need to commune with you and to ask one more time that your spirit will fill me and that you may give a message to every single person listening today, the message that they need to hear, that they may be drawn close to you. And Lord, I pray that your spirit will also draw me close to you, that the gospel that I preach will be the same gospel that is saving my own soul. Thank you so much, Lord, that you're willing to use even weak vessels like me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, this morning, talking about dwelling outside the gates, how a sinful world can be better than Eden. Now, when I say that, does that make you wonder if I'm insane? I know some people may think, what is she talking about? So maybe I'm about to preach heresy up here, and you're going to find out that I'm wrong, and you're all going to walk away going, that woman was messed up. Go ahead and listen, right? Because you've got to be sure that you know I'm not preaching you error. All right, thank you. I'm going to speak for a moment about the Garden of Eden. What do you think of when you think of the Garden of Eden? How beautiful everything was. How perfect everything was. When you compare our present world to the Garden of Eden, what strikes you as different now? Death. Sin. What else? Suffering, misery. You guys are all thinking the same way I do. So, in the Garden of Eden, things were perfect. And how can what we have now possibly be better than that? No ideas, huh? All right. Well, you remember that in the Garden of Eden, everything was perfect. Now, Lucifer had already done his thing and rebelled against God. As far as we know, that had happened beforehand. But there was still perfection in the Garden of Eden. No suffering, no sin, no sorrow. But the love of God was still untested in the minds of the, those living in the universe. God's character had not been proved yet. You see, back at the beginning, even before Eden, even just up in heaven, before Lucifer sinned, God had this law that he said was the right way to live. He said, everybody, love God. What? Love God first and love your neighbor. Right. So everybody live by God's law. Just trust him on this. He's got it right. Love God first. Love your neighbor as yourself. As long as everybody lives like that, everybody will be happy. But Lucifer came along and he had another idea. He said, listen, God is selfish. He's wanting everybody to worship him. I have a better idea. Everybody love yourself first and then you'll be happy. This is the, ba the best path to happiness. So God's way was, if you see the most beautiful mango on the tree, because I love mangoes, you pick that mango and you go, wow, who could I give this to? And the devil said, I've got a better idea. If I see the biggest, most beautiful mango on the tree, what do I want to do with it? Eat it. I pick it and I go, I got to get that before anybody else, right? Selfishness. This is a familiar thought to us because we have carnal minds. We think, look at that mango. I'm going to get there before anybody else, right? But back before sin happened, the first impulse that they naturally had was, wow, I want to give this to somebody. Who do I love? Who can I show love to by sharing this with them? Well, in Eden, Adam and Eve were still living that way, right? God had created them with perfect minds, and they were still looking for ways to serve each other, minister to each other. Then along comes Lucifer, and he says, you know what? God is not fair. He suggested unbelief, didn't he? He said, God's character is not what he says it is. 
Now, I want you to remember that because the character of God is what's at issue in the great controversy between Christ and Satan, right? God says love is the best way. If you worship me first, that's the happiest way to live. Worship me first. Worship, you know, love others as yourself. So when, when God told Adam and Eve, this is how you got to live, it was a matter of faith, wasn't it? Trust me on this, Adam and Eve. You don't want to do it any other way. Just obey what I said and stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they were supposed to eat from the tree of life. Stay with me here, right? Like Elder Lemon last night, stay with me. When the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life were held up next to each other in Adam and Eve's mind, first the tree of life looked like the best. But then, later on, they started thinking that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Wow, you know, Lucifer says, you want to know... You want to know what God is trying to hold back from you? I'll let you know. You can find out what it is that he's keeping back from you because I'll tell you right now, he's not love. He's selfish. And he wants to keep back from you the knowledge of something good, the knowledge of something evil. Now, God had said, have you ever wondered why it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why would it be knowledge of good and evil? What's wrong about the knowledge of good? Don't you want the knowledge of good? How many of us want the knowledge of good? I want the knowledge of good. Why would God say the knowledge of good and evil? Why would he name the tree that? Why couldn't he just call it the knowledge of evil? Wouldn't that be logical? Let me tell you why God called it the knowledge of good and evil. Because God has a plan to bring good out of evil. Isn't that the whole great controversy in a nutshell? God said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't eat of the tree. Obey me. Trust me. My way is best. They did it anyway, and God said, okay, not just in spite of your sin, but actually because of your sin, the universe is going to understand my love in ways they never could have if sin hadn't have happened. And this is how we can have a richer and better life dwelling outside the gates. Because we have a chance to understand the character of God that we never would have had if we had stayed in Eden state. Now, we're all rejoicing at that wonderful chance to uh, feel pain and suffering, aren't we? <laughs> it's no picnic, is it? You know, the rest of the universe out there, all these angels and whoever is unfallen out there that watches us, I don't think they're envious somehow. I don't think they're wishing that they could be us. But we still have a wonderful chance to learn that God is love in ways we never could have if sin had never happened. And so do they. Because of us, they're learning. They're figuring out, wow, we would never want to have that come back. You see, why does God allow so much suffering? I know you must have asked that. I've certainly asked that in my life. Some of you know my story from maybe listening on Audioverse or something. You know I was raped as a child by my grandfather. I went through a lot of abuse. A lot of terrible things happened to me. And you can listen to that on Audioverse later on if you want to. But the point is, God allowed bad things to happen to me. Why would he do that if he's a God of love? Why would he not answer the prayers of a little girl saying, please, God, don't allow these bad things to happen? Bam, silence, nothing. The iron ceiling, God not paying attention to me. Why would he do that if he's a God of love? Now, yesterday I was in a discussion with some friends who, this guy who's saying, well, I believe there's a God, but how can it be that God is loving and powerful? Either God is loving but he doesn't have the power to do anything about what we're going through. Or God is powerful enough to do something about it, but he doesn't care. Haven't you ever wrestled with that? I think almost everybody who is challenged with the idea of a God of love has to wrestle with that at some point. We wonder, why did God make it that way? Now, how did God... Go back to the Garden of Eden with me for a minute. How did God want to teach Adam and Eve about his love? spending time with them. So there was communion with God directly. Um, we could compare that in our modern world with prayer and Bible study, but also with nature, right? Not only beholding God in the nature all around him, but I would, I would say that perhaps the best way to learn about the character of God and of how God's love really works is relationship with one another, right? That's another way of learning from nature. We learn through relationship. We learn through deep, authentic community with other people how love really works. When people tell me, I just can't believe in God's love, sometimes I say, well, how do you know that I even care how you feel? Well, you just, you just do. You always care when I call you. Okay, well then, 
That love comes from God. If you can believe in my love, you can believe in the love of God. The problem is you're not listening to him. When God says, I love you, you brush it away as a fly and go on with your computer game or your movies or your relationships that are idolatrous, whatever it is. I look for something else to satisfy me because I don't really believe that God is going to satisfy me. You see, unbelief, the same thing that tempted Adam and Eve, is at the root of that. And when our unbelief comes in, and we can't believe that God is really going to supply our needs, the next thing comes in after it, pride. If God isn't going to help me, I can fix it myself. I'll find somebody who will make me feel loved and worthwhile. I'll do a job so well that I will finally feel like I'm worth something. I will find something to escape to that will fill the place that only God can really fill in my heart. And whatever it is we flee to, that will be an addiction because it will be what we worship instead of God. You see, you can't choose whether or not you're going to worship. You will worship. I will worship. We're created to worship. So we don't get to pick whether or not we're worshipers. What we pick is what we worship. We can worship the God of heaven, and if we choose not to worship him, we will worship something else. It will become an addiction. It will become something we cannot break away from because that thing is the most important thing in our lives. And whatever we worship, the bottom line is it will actually be self. You know, people get into these idolatrous relationships and they tell me, you don't understand how much I love him. You don't understand how much I love her. If you really had experienced love like this, you'd get it. Right. What people really love when they don't love God is they love the feelings that the other person gives them. So maybe they're getting beaten up by their boyfriend or girlfriend, but they feel so worthwhile. I'm the only one who shows him love. I'm the only one who really sees that she's a diamond in the rough. You know, I am going to be the one who rescues her. I am going to be the one who redeems him. Right? Either we believe that God is God, or we try to be God ourselves. Or sometimes we try to get someone else or something else to do what only God can do for us. It's always a cycle, and it always includes pride and unbelief. These two root sins that lead to everything else. Look at Lucifer. From the very beginning, unbelief in the character of God and pride were a cycle in his life that set this whole cycle of evil going, and it goes on being duplicated in every life in the world. Whatever your sin problem is, whatever your struggle is, I guarantee if you'll trace it back to the root, you'll find there's unbelief and pride at the heart of it. And that's good news, isn't it? Because the problems we face in this world have a solution. There is a gospel. There is a gospel that transforms every situation. This whole great controversy theme that God is a God of love and he says, I do love you. I am sufficient for your needs. Every time we're challenged on that, the trials that we face in this world push us to choose. Am I going to believe that God is who he says he is? Or am I going to believe that God is who I feel he is? Which one is true? In your family, I guarantee because you have sinners in your family, there are going to be struggles. But that's good news because that's an opportunity for you to grow into the image of Christ. It's an opportunity for me to. Now, if you think back to Eden, God's ideal, did those families, God's plan for families, were they going to have struggles? Carnal nature? Did Adam and Eve have that battle with sin going on in their relationship? not until they chose to not believe in the character of God. So God had an initial plan, an ideal that he had laid out for us as a people. He had this great plan, love begets love. Now see that beautiful picture there? That is my youngest son, Skylar, hugging me. Doesn't that just warm your heart? Well, it warms mine anyway. All that mischief packed into one little squirt. <laughs> love begets love. You see, that child causes me problems. He grabs his brother and goes, he, he does things that are not perfect. But when I look at him, oh, I love that child. God wanted this wonderful cycle to go on forever in our relationships in this world, in Eden, all through eternity. People would love God. They would pour out their lives in adoration of him. They would believe in his love, and they would pour that out on their children. So perfect, sinless parents would love their little perfect, sinless children perfectly. And that baby, as soon as it was born, could start learning about the character of God, even before it was old enough to understand the word God, right? This is how God wants it. And still, this does happen in families, right? 
When my babies were born one by one, I loved them like there was nothing else in the whole world for me to even notice. And that love that I poured out on them was expressed in the way that I treated them, the way I snuggled them and fed them and changed them and took care of everything in their lives so that from their earliest moments, they were experiencing the love of God flowing through me. But we have a problem because ever since Eden, there's never been a perfect parent. You could argue that God was a perfect parent and look how his kids turned out. There's never been a perfect parent and that means that God's perfect plan is messed up, isn't it? God ordained that perfect children would get a perfect picture of the perfect God's love through their perfect relationship with their parents. But that doesn't happen, does it? With no perfect example of the character of God coming from their parents, every child's picture of God is warped. In other words, Satan's attack on the character of God and our perception of the character of God takes its form most potently in our homes. Because this child, from its very earliest moments, is dealing with a parent with carnal nature, a parent who doesn't really want to get up in the middle of the night and feed that baby. And who, in a hypothetical situation, might even kick her husband and say, can't you get up and change her this time? Hypothetically, of course. <laughs> that could happen, huh? And anybody out there who's a parent knows exactly how that feels. This, this love relationship God designed is inherently messed up by who we are. So God wants Eden in our homes. And we battle because we still have this carnal nature. Now, if love begets love, how do our children learn about the character of God? If you're a parent, how, what is the most effective way your children are going to learn about the character of God from day one? Your example, the way you treat them, the way you love them well, this is going to be the most powerful influence on their lives for what changes them into the image of God, right? Because by beholding, we become. And if you're beholding a parent who's carnal and sinful and selfish and leaves you alone all day long or slaps you around if you wake them up at night, you're going to learn that God is not fair, huh? God is not loving. God is not just. And so every child is growing up with this picture of God that's somewhat warped by their family of origin. And some children, their picture of God is warped very profoundly by the image of God that their parents paint for them. But isn't it good news that every family goes through this? Every sinner here, every one of us has been negatively impacted by our parents' sins, and some of us very profoundly. But this is good news because if our parents' sins are affecting every one of us. Don't you think God has a solution for that? Amen. Don't you think God cares about this? After all, the battle is about the character of God. Is God really who he says he is, or is he who I feel he is? When you go through abusive situations, neglectful situations, times that your parent warps that picture of God for you, there's good news. God will restore God will give you the power to believe that he is who he says he is instead of who you might feel he is sometimes. God's law is a transcript of his character. character. So the character of God is perfectly portrayed in this law of love, which last night we were talking about is truth, right? Truth, law, love, these are all synonymous. Jesus is truth, God is love. All of these things work together. And we're told in the book Education, page 154, unselfishness, the principle of God's kingdom, is the principle that Satan hates. Its very existence he denies. Can you see how God is working to show us that unselfishness is the principle of his kingdom? And Satan is working above all else to make us not believe that. You see, there it is, the lie of Lucifer. God is not unselfish. Right? If he says that there is no such thing as unselfishness, what is he saying? God is selfish. At the very root of everything, God is selfish. And he is not so committed to your happiness and your welfare. What he's really committed to is his own happiness and welfare. In other words, God tells you to become holy and to seek holiness instead of happiness because he's selfish. He wants you to pour out all this glory on him instead of trying to get anything for yourself. And every one of us experiences this struggle. Which one am I going to seek first, happiness or holiness? 
you'll experience this struggle perhaps most potently in your own family. Which one is going to take the supremacy in my life? When my husband is being grumpy and he's not giving me what I want, what am I supposed to do? Am I going to seek happiness? Am I going to seek holiness? Am I going to sulk and say, no, I'm not going to go and hug you and act like I love you. You're hurting my heart. You're not treating me the way that I deserve to be treated. This morning, we listened to Elder Thompson talk about forgiveness, about how to forgive. And he brought out that wonderful point that true love for other people always flows out of true love for God. It's only through a deep love relationship with God that you're going to be able to pour out unselfish love on your family members. And I mean your parents, I mean your spouses, I mean your children. It's all from God. Any good thing within us comes from God. God is able to use any bad situation also for good, right? The fact that my children have carnal natures, while it wasn't in God's plan, he's using it to accomplish his greater purpose in our lives by changing us into his image, right? God helps me to practice self-denial. When my children are selfish, I have an opportunity to test out, is the character of God really what God says it is? Does God really care enough to intervene in my heart and transform me into his image in this particular situation. In other words, does the gospel really work? Can God change my carnal selfish heart into an unselfish heart in this painful situation when my spouse is not treating me the way I feel I deserve to be treated? When my children are complaining about the meal that I worked hard to prepare? When my parents are grumping at me and not giving me the responsibility and the freedom that I feel that I ought to have? Whatever it is, even if, even if that person is being unselfish toward me, even if that person is not ministering to me, how did Jesus live his life? He sought not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And as we live our lives beholding his example, he enables us to be changed into his image so that we can also live our lives not to be ministered unto, but to minister. You know, most people, when they get married, they have a great plan for how their life is going to be. How many of you are married? On that wonderful wedding day, did you picture that you would be having terrible problems with each other? No, no. When I donned the white dress and paraded down that aisle, I knew it was going to be happily ever after. Why? Because I was marrying my best friend. And because we loved each other so much, and you know, like it or not, there was a little bit of this feeling in there that before I was dating him, I was pretty happy. I had a great life. But when I started dating my husband, oh, wow. He took my happiness up to a whole new notch. And then we got engaged. Wow, this man has chosen me over all the other women in the world. Another notch. Think of what it'll be like when we get married. Wow, paradise, right? Yeah, yeah, 50% of marriages end in divorce, and a lot of the people who stay married wish they didn't have to. But... For us, it'll be different. Why? Because we really love each other. We've got what it takes, right? You know, the funny thing about marriage is that you make a commitment till death do us part, no matter what comes up. And the unspoken um, kind of, the idea behind that is that, of course, there are going to be a lot of things you can't possibly predict, right? It's going to come up. There are going to be things that you never dreamed could happen that will happen. That's the one guarantee you've got when you make those vows. Stuff you can't imagine right now is going to happen. But you make that commitment saying, I am not the one who's strong enough to do this, but God in me is going to love this person no matter what they do. And then you hit the crash when the rubber meets the road and this person no longer makes me feel happy. You know what 99% of marriages do right then? When... This spouse, let's say this is me, okay? Right here is me and right here is my goal. My goal is happiness. Now, when you're dating, your spouse is right here pushing you along toward happiness. But then when you get married, all of a sudden, this other person gets squarely between you and your goal. You want to go on vacation in that place. And he wants to go on vacation in this place. You want that house. He wants this house. You want another child. He doesn't. You want to go and do something fun this afternoon, he wants to take a nap, or he gets sick. Or, you know, it just happens. 
And in that moment, when that crisis hits, and you realize, I'm right here, my goal of happiness is right here, and my spouse is squarely between me and my goal, you have to choose something. You're going to choose to make a new goal over here, holiness. Because if your goal is holiness, the good news is your spouse will never get between you and your goal. Never can do it. No matter what he or she does, they'll never be able to mess with you getting to holiness. The more pressure they put on you, the faster they press you close to Jesus. I speak from experience. Even though I'm married to a nearly perfect man, do I dare say in his own estimation? Okay, no, 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 no. I wouldn't even say that. And my husband would be the first to tell you it's not. But, you know, even though I'm nearly perfect myself, still, the, these battles sometimes happen that I have to choose, am I going to try to reach happiness? Because if I'm going to try to reach happiness instead of trying to reach holiness, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to manipulate. Grit my teeth. If you would just do this, then I could be happy. If you would just stop doing that, then I could be happy. And you see, the problem in marriage is never that the other person is so selfish. The problem is that we're not allowing ourselves to be changed into the image of Christ. Now, is there a time? Because I know some people in this audience are going, but that means that I have to just be walked on? You want me to be a doormat all my life? No. No, that's not what God is asking you to do. God is asking you to confront not from selfish motives, but from unselfish motives. To be able to go to your spouse and say, there's something going on that is troubling me. I'm feeling like our marriage is not reflecting what God wants it to be. I think we need to pray about this. Sometimes you might not even be able to talk to your spouse about it. Maybe all you need to do is talk to God about it. Amen. Say, Lord, here's something going on. It's frustrating me, and I'm experiencing a strong temptation to be selfish. But unselfishness is the great principle of your kingdom, and I am committed to that principle. I don't have the power to be unselfish in this situation. Everything within me wants to grab this person and shove them out of the way so that I can get to happiness. But I choose to believe that you working in me can make even me unselfish. Amen. And when that happens in one person's life, that's the surest way to bring the other person to the point where it happens for them too. The best way for you to convince your spouse to become unselfish is for you to become unselfish. How shocking is that? Amen. The best way to convince your children to become unselfish is for you to be unselfish toward them. It's amazing how this works, even towards your parents, even parents who are not treating you well. The best way that you can bring your parents to become unselfish is to be unselfish to them. And even if they don't change, that wasn't your goal, was it? Because your goal is not to change somebody else. Your goal is to be changed into the image of Christ, right? Pursuing holiness instead of happiness. God has a plan in which every one of his children will be transformed into his image of unselfishness. And this is what he's calling his people to be, unselfish, to be like him. This is the, the experience of going back to Eden, right? But it's better than Eden. It's better than Eden because we've tested the promises of the Lord and we found out they really are true. Amen. You see, in Eden, nobody suffered. Everything was great. But their understanding of the character of God was still somewhat shallow. God wants to change it so that it's not shallow anymore. You see, God's ideal for the family is not fighting, bickering, people all battling to get what they want in the situation. And therefore, the ideal family is not a family in which each person gets what they want. Even in my family, believe it or not, if everyone were to make me happy and I were to make everyone else happy, we would probably have a pretty shallow understanding of the character of God. So instead, God allows us to have trials, times when we are abrasive to one another, when somebody has to give up their wishes in order to serve somebody else. Serve one another in love. You see, this is the cycle of beauty that God wants in marriages, two people serving each other. We think that the, the true happy, happily ever after is when he makes me happy and I make him happy. But God's plan of happily ever after is two people seeking to minister to one another rather than seeking to be ministered to. Now, if Satan's goal is to malign the character of God, and his most effective tool for doing that is our families of origin or our families that we live in even after we get married, wouldn't it make sense that that 
family life, that home life, can have some pretty potent power to mess up our perception of the character of God? Let me say that in a different way. If God's plan is to reveal his love through parents loving their children perfectly, wouldn't you think that Satan's going to bend all his energies to mess up that relationship? He's going to do everything he can to make those parents treat their children wrong because then, wow, what a gold mine. He's got a child who grows up to feel like God is dictatorial. God is proud. God is selfish. God doesn't care about how he feels. God is distant, and no matter how much this young person prays and seeks God and tries to connect with him, every time they mess up a little bit, they go, man, he'll never love me now. I messed up, because that's what it was like in their family of origin, right? No matter how much they try and try to please God, he feels so far away. They feel this terrible craving for intimacy, and they're driven to addictions, to relationships, to pornography, to whatever, because they're craving intimacy, and they're not getting it in their relationship with God. Why? It's not because God is so far away, but it's because their perception of God is warped by their family of origin. See how this is important? Our families of origin warp our picture of the character of God, and God wants to solve that problem by the same things that he used in Eden. He used his word, in that case, speaking out loud and face-to-face -face with Adam and Eve, and he used nature. And God will do those things. I'm going to talk some more about that this afternoon, how to heal from abuse. But the point I want you to get is all children lose something of their perception, their accurate perception of the character of God because their parents mess it up. But life outside of Eden is still best for us. Otherwise, why would God have sent Adam and Eve out? Is God a vindictive sort of God? You know, a lot of people still have this perception of the character of God. They're like, you know, why did God kick them out of Eden? Was it kind of a, you don't want to play by my rules? You can't play with my toys. Get out of here. Is that the way God is? No. So when God kicked Adam and Eve out of Eden, if you want to call it that, was that a curse or a blessing? It was a blessing. Now, when God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, what did he tell them they were going to have instead of perfection? Toil, hardship, suffering, thorns. They were going to have to work hard. There were going to be a lot of things to make their lives unhappy. Why would God give us the gift of unhappiness? Why would God give you the gift of unhappiness in your marriage? To make us see our need for God, yes. To help us to understand the character of God more clearly than we ever could have if sin had never happened. Because, you see, we're, we're, still, we're still so prone to looking at happiness as the goal in life. God is using pain to inoculate us against sin. He is wanting to help us to understand that happiness is not our goal. Holiness is our goal. So many people want to go to heaven because it's going to be a happy place. Finally, no more suffering. Finally, no more pain. Everything goes the way I want. But God wants us to want to be in heaven because finally we will have a perfect understanding of the character of God. Amen. To understand that God really is who he says he is. God is really that good. You see, we learn about God's character most thoroughly through the trials. If your marriage makes you happy, you're not going to learn about God's character nearly as thoroughly as you will in a marriage where your spouse challenges you, makes you go to your knees to pray, to ask God to take away that carnal heart within you and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that seeks to know God. You know, we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. That is true of the entire universe. In other words, God is able to use even bad things to accomplish good things. God is able to use even sin to bring us to a greater understanding of the character of his love than we ever could have had if sin had never happened. This is how dwelling outside the gates is better. It doesn't feel better. It's not a happy place to be, but it is better. It is better because we have a chance to learn about the character of God that we never could have had otherwise. Was there any other way that God could have taught us that, though? 
Don't you feel that sometimes? No matter how much you know, I know, God, these trials are going to help me to learn more about you. But still, wouldn't there be something better? You know, there's a book called The Gift of Pain by Paul Brand. Anybody ever read The Gift of Pain? You ought to read The Gift of Pain if you've ever been through any pain in life. Dr. Brand was a physician in India. He went through his own terrible struggles and trials as a kid, but he grew up in India and his father died when he was a young person. I think he was 15. Um, And people gave him all these foolish ways of comforting. Well, God needed your father in heaven. You know, his work was done on this earth. He's like, how could that possibly be? Look at all the people my father was helping in India. So these questions of why is God allowing suffering? Why does God allow bad things to happen? Just were wrestling through his mind all the time as a young person. But Dr. Brand became a pain researcher. And he tells the story at the beginning of his book of a young girl who was brought to him who had a terrible problem. She had no sense of pain. She had a rare congenital abnormality that made her not care when she was hurting. And so she found it amusing to chew off the ends of her fingers and spray blood all over on the wall. It was amusing because her mother would come in there and freak out. She could get attention so easily. She would chew on her tongue. She would step on a thorn and never take it out all day long. She didn't pay attention if she had an infection. And even though she was only very small, her problem was already so profound that the mother brought her to him saying, what can we do? How can I help my daughter? The daughter's sitting there completely unconcerned, bandages on her hands, doesn't bother her. She's happy. Dr. Brand did everything he could, but there was nothing he could do, really, to help this girl to not damage herself. He said he later found out that she was, at 11 years old, she was in an institution with her legs amputated, she'd lost most of her fingers, She had a brain, her mind was working fine, but because she had no sense of pain, as a young person, she damaged herself so profoundly that there was nothing that they could do to stop her. Dr. Brand went on to do research, groundbreaking research actually, in the area of leprosy. He was the researcher who discovered that leprosy was not a disease that ate off your fingers and toes. They used to think leprosy would make you blind, it would make the end of your nose fall off, all these kinds of things, but Dr. Brand discovered through his research that leprosy did not actually eat those things off. Leprosy damaged the nerves, so the nerves would be damaged so that people would not know when they had hurt themselves. So a person walking for a few hours, now you and and I will typically vary our gait. We don't do it consciously, but we walk on this side of our foot a little while, and then we'll walk on that side of our foot for a little while. We kind of We change the way that we walk so that we don't end up with some ulcer from pounding the same place in the same way all day long. But a a leper would not do that. So they would get foot ulcers. Or, you know, living in India, they might be walking around with no shoes on. They would step on something hot or maybe something sharp, and they would damage their foot. But because it didn't hurt, they wouldn't do anything about it, even when it got infected. Lepers would sleep at night, and the rats would come and nibble their toes. And they might wake up in the morning with no toes. Well, the leprosy ate my toes off. As terrible as it sounds, Dr. Brand discovered pain was the gift that these people needed so desperately. So he set out to remedy this problem. There was no way to restore these nerves. He could kill the leprosy, but he couldn't do anything to restore the nerve damage. So he started instructing these lepers. He he went through elaborate systems of he would make shoes custom made for each person's foot so that they could walk all day long without damaging their foot unknowingly. He made gloves with sensors on them so that the people could work on something and they would know if if they were starting to burn themselves. The sensor would go bleep and they could pull their hand away. He did everything he could to help these people, instruct them, examine your foot carefully every night, make sure that there aren't any cuts or sores treat anything that's infected. Even though it doesn't hurt, treat it. And he had a lot of success in helping these lepers to pay attention to the things that their bodies needed. Where before, when he was in India, he would see a leper sitting beside a, you know, a a cooking pot. And when something, you know, fell in the pot and wasn't supposed to be there, or a pot, you know, a potato would fall in the fire, they would just nod to the leper and he would shuffle over there and stick his hand in the fire and pull it out. 
because that's what lepers were for. He didn't feel the pain, and so he was the right one to do the job. Never mind that his hand is all burned and scarred from years of doing this. Didn't matter, right? Well, in his work, he was able to have such success in helping these lepers to pay attention to the injuries on their bodies. But he said he, he noted one day he was watching a man, who, one of the guys who had recuperated from the leprosy but still had the nerve damage, was working on a car. And he saw the man over and over trying to get his hand into this difficult place. Just couldn't get it in there because the sensor kept on ringing. And he couldn't, he couldn't get his hand in there. Finally, he said he saw the man just pull off the sensors and stick his hand in there and do what he wanted to do anyway. And that was the moment that Dr. Brand said he realized that only pain would truly be effective in stopping people from doing things that were damaging to them. If they wanted to do it badly enough, they would do it anyway, knowing it was going to damage them. Now, you know, in Eden, God created us with perfect hearts, no carnal nature, no craving for rebellion. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they flipped that terrible switch. And now, we crave rebellion. We crave power. We want to be in the position of God. We want to be the one who can get whatever we want whenever we want it. And we don't want to respect anybody's rules. We have such a strong drive towards sin that the only thing, the only thing that will drive us away from sin is if we suffer from it. If we find sin is painful, we will finally hate it. And that's why God allows pain. Not because he's mean, not because he wants to punish us for choosing not to worship him. God only gives good gifts. And the gift of pain is a good gift. As terrible as it feels sometimes, it's still a good gift. Now, for the last few years, I've been warning my children that wasp stings and bee stings are very painful. I've told them many a time, be careful, don't go close to this, don't go close to that, let mommy kill it. There was a yellow jacket hive down beside our sidewalk at one house we lived in. We had to work really hard to get those things out. We even had to burn. We stood, my friend poured gas down the, the hive and then set it on fire, and the kids all had a wonderful time watching the ground burn. <laughs> and then after it finally died down, my friend took a pickaxe and dug it up, and whoof, it flamed up all over again. And yet even after the fire died down, he dug some more, and he found eggs that didn't seem to have been damaged at all. These things are hard to get rid of. But I explained to my children over and over, stay away from these things. They will hurt you. Do you think my children believed me? <laughs> well, being, being children with little carnal natures, they, they had a good attitude about trying to stay away from things that mommy said would hurt them. But then, one day, my son came screaming into the house. Mommy, I got stinged. And stinged he was. <laughs> And all of a sudden, he had a much deeper understanding of why mommy said stay away from wasps. You see, when I was teaching research, uh, research and literature, I taught my students about two different kinds of research, primary research and secondary research. You know what the difference is between primary research and secondary research? Okay, experience. So secondary research is when I decide I want to learn about this thing and I go to Google and I learn all I can that way. Primary research is when I get out there and actually try it. Now, there are some things you don't want to do primary research on, right? How does it feel to drown? You really don't want to go there, do you? You also don't want to do our primary research on how it feels to be stung by a wasp. Ask my son. It's not pretty. He would have much rather learned by secondary research. Mommy said, stay away from wasps, and therefore I will stay away from wasps. God tried to get us to do secondary research. Trust me on this. You guys don't want to go there. He did his best to persuade us. Take the secondary research route. 
but we chose the primary research route. And so we get to learn the hard way about what it feels like to be stung by a wasp. Now, as much as it's not fun, which of my sons do you think had a greater respect for wasps? The one who had been stung or the one who had not? The one who had been stung. Are you seeing my point here? God didn't want sin to happen. He didn't want us to rebel. But because we have rebelled, he has said, all right, I'm going to have to let this come to its logical conclusion. I'm going to have to let you feel just how terrible sin feels in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your relationships with your friends. I'm going to let you feel the sting because that's the only way you're going to truly be inoculated against sin. Because you see, God has a plan, doesn't he? He said that when he finally makes an end of sin, affliction will not rise up a second time, will it? God means that. He means what he says. And the reason why he's still allowing us to go on in this world, I believe there are two reasons. One is that perhaps there's someone somewhere that somehow, someday, might decide, I wonder if that whole sin thing didn't work out because they didn't try the right way. And so God is going to remove any possibility of anyone ever again in this universe trying that whole sin thing out. And number two, God loves you and me so much. He wants to give us every chance we have. He wants the whole world to understand his character because that's the only way that we will be able to make an intelligent decision as to whether or not we want to serve him. That's why he puts us in troublesome families in painful relationships with people at work, in confusing situations where we're facing things that aren't our fault, but we suffer. Because God wants to test us. Are we really going to believe that he is who he says he is instead of who we feel he is? Are we really going to believe when he says, trust me, you don't want to go into the sin thing again? Are we going to believe him for the rest of eternity? Or are we ever going to try this again? God wants to help us to understand his character in every way possible. And so he allows us to suffer. Not because he's mean, not because he's punishing us, but because he loves us. A lot of people look through the Old Testament and they think, look at all these times that God caused people to suffer. He gave them pain on purpose. Look at the ways that he hurt people on purpose. Well, that's because God has a plan to use suffering to transform us into his image. You see... God's will was that sin never happened, but God's purpose is to reveal his character to the universe. You will never be able to stop God from accomplishing his great purpose. Amen. Even through your life, there has never been a person who has lived who has not helped accomplish God's great purpose of revealing his character to the universe. Pick whoever's the worst person. Who's the worst person you can think of in all of history? Hitler. All right, let's use Hitler. Did God use the life of Hitler to reveal what his love is like? God revealed to the universe, this is what it will be like if you have Lucifer run this universe. Do you want that? How many of you want that? And the universe out there is going, whoa, we don't want that. Every person that has ever lived will prove that God is right and Satan is wrong. That the way of love is right and the way of selfishness is wrong. Amen. We try to set ourselves up as somehow the standard. I am the one who knows what's right and wrong. When we don't believe in the character of God, we set up our own selves as the standard of right and wrong, don't we? We have an epidemic of this going on in America and all over the world today, right? When I don't believe in the character of God, I believe in my own character. How does that work practically? If I were God, I wouldn't do that. Why didn't God do this for me? When I was suffering as a kid, why didn't God rescue me? If I were God, I wouldn't leave it happening that way. I would do something about it. You see then, when we don't believe in the character of God as loving, we believe in ourselves as loving. I, selfish, sinful me, who won't even move over to let somebody else get in front of me on the freeway, I'm going to be the standard of righteousness. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So we'll never stop God from accomplishing his great purpose of revealing his character through our lives. 
His great purpose is to demonstrate love, thereby bringing the universe to the unanimous voluntary decision to accept the rule of love. You and I don't get to choose whether we're going to participate in that process. God has already told us how it's going to come out, and he's not going to be wrong. He said, I'm going to wipe away all tears from your eyes. I'm going to take away all suffering. I'm going to take away all sin. I'm going to make an end of this terrible experiment. But first, I'm going to help people get what they need to get out of it so that no one will ever doubt that love is the right way to rule the universe again. Now, we do, however, get a choice. We choose if we want to allow his will to be done in our lives. God's first great purpose and will in our lives, other than revealing his character to the universe, is to transform us into the image of Christ. That's what he wants. He wants a relationship with us where he pours out love on us and we understand how to gratefully receive it. We accept his love. It transforms us into loving people. We pour out his love on everybody we come in contact with. And this glorious experiment goes on, spreading an influence from that one pebble that falls into the pond in our lives. The ripples go out of influence on everyone around us as we show what love works like, what the character of God looks like manifest in a human being's life. That's what God wants to do through you. You get to choose whether you're going to do that in the experiment or if you're going to do the opposite, if you're going to reveal what it's like when God isn't in a life. God doesn't want to allow us to be lost, but it's more important to him to allow us to be lost than to force us to be saved because that's against his character. God can do almost anything, but God cannot do one thing. God cannot be unloving. And it would be unloving of him to force people to worship him. Bow on your knees in front of me. You see, when, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told to bow before the idol, what did they do? No way. They were not idolaters. They stood strong for the God of heaven. And God worked miraculously in that situation. And then next thing they knew, Nebuchadnezzar said, Anybody in all the world who refuses to bow before the God of heaven is going to be punished. And God must have been going, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, <laughs> you're halfway there, <laughs> but you still don't understand. True worship can never be commanded. It can never be forced. It has to be persuaded. If I lock my daughter in a room and say, I'm not going to feed you or give you water until you love me, what will she say? It'll take her a little while. But she'll eventually get hungry enough or thirsty enough to come out and say, Mommy, I do love you. Will that be real love? Not at all. Now, I'm very fortunate my daughter does love me, but it's not because I've forced her or locked her in a room, because true love can never come that way, right? God's great purpose is not to get you to love him. As hard as that might be to understand, God, God's great purpose is not to have a relationship with you. He wants a relationship with you, but that's not his great purpose. His great purpose is to love you well no matter how you respond to him. Am I preaching heresy yet? Anybody think I'm a heretic? You see, what if, what if I were to come to one of you, let's say one of you has this beautiful bursting belly. We'll, we'll say it's some happy woman who's about to have a baby. And I come to you and I say, wow, this is so exciting. When are you due? She tells me the date. I say, wow, you must be so thrilled. And she says, yes, that's because I finally am going to have somebody who will love me forever, all the time. <laughs> if you're a parent, that's disturbing right there. Because you know what you discover? About three hours into the whole I have a baby thing, you discover that this child is profoundly committed only to themselves, and not really to you or your happiness. <laughs> and you're lucky if you make it three hours. You're holding this an angelic little child going, oh, you're so cute. And people around you are going, well, she's a little wrinkled right now, but maybe she'll get there. <laughs> but to you, wow, she's glorious. And then she starts howling. And you say, it's OK, sweetie. I'll take care of it. But I'm really tired right now. Would you let me have a nap first? <laughs> right there, you find out who's got a carnal nature here. This child is not going to pour out love unselfishly on its parents all of its life. If my goal in having children was to have somebody love me, I would be sorely disappointed with parenting. Now, my children do love me. They're not a disappointment to me. But 
they don't have a relationship with me in which they always make me perfectly happy. And you know, it's because I made a commitment to them early on to love them no matter how they treated me, that they learned to love me at all. They love me because I love them. I pour out love on them, they pour out love back on me. That's the glorious cycle that God ordains. God has ordained and purposed that he will love us well. And as he loves us well, that's the best chance that we have of learning to love him back. So God's will is that we love him back. But his great purpose is to love us well no matter how we respond to him. Sin's effect on us is not God's will, but he can use even sin to accomplish both his purpose and his will. His purpose of revealing his love to the universe and his will of changing surrendered humans into his image. We don't have time to go into those texts, but I'm going to do that this afternoon. But just so you know, Genesis 50:20 and Exodus 9:16 are two examples of that. And just Romans 8:28. We all know Romans 8:28, right? We know that all things work together for good to those who Yes, if we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength, nothing bad can ever happen to us. Truly. Only things that feel bad. But all those things can be used to accomplish good. You see, God uses even things that are not his will to accomplish his greater purpose. And God wants to use even the things in your life that are not his will to accomplish his greater purpose and to transform you into his image. God wants to use the messed up situations in your marriage. God wants to use the messed up relationship between a parent and a child. God wants to use the complicated emotional baggage that you carry from your childhood to draw you close to him, to transform you into his image. You see, according to the gospel, pain is not the enemy. Sin is the enemy. And pain can be one of God's most effective tools to deliver us from sin. See, if pain is your enemy, then happiness is your goal, huh? What if holiness is your goal? What becomes your enemy? Sin becomes your enemy. God wants to transform us. If our lives consist of only everything under the sun, as Solomon said, if only what happens in this world matters and when you die you become dirt and nothing else ever happens, then of course pain is your enemy and happiness is your goal. Get as much happiness as you can because when you die it's all over, right? But if holiness is your goal and you have eternity in mind, then sin will be your enemy and you will be driven by a great desire to serve God with all your heart. Now, I know some of this may sound kind of theoretical to you, but it's very personal and practical for me. I'm, I'm married to the most wonderful man in the entire world. Those of you who know him, you know I'm right, right? How many of you know him? He's amazing, isn't he? My husband, Alan, is wonderful. We've been married for over 11 years now, and I've never yet regretted it for one moment. But there are painful times in our relationship. Sometimes things happen, and unfortunately, even though I'm nearly perfect, he still has some work to do. <laughs> but you know, overall, I just feel one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given to me is my marriage to this wonderful man that he brought to me. And it's my taste of Eden. It's what's brought me so much healing from the damage that I went through as a child and in my own misconceptions on the character of God, my husband has helped me so much to understand more about the love of God. So he's brought me much happiness, even though he's pushed me toward holiness every now and then too. <laughs> but a few weeks ago, we sat in a doctor's office and the doctor told us that unless we intervene with some drastic medical intervention, my husband won't be living much longer. He has a few more years unless we do some treatments. Now, thankfully, the treatments look like they're going to be effective, and we have, you know, great hope that he's going to be okay. But apparently he contracted hepatitis C as a child in Zimbabwe, and he hasn't known he's had it for all these years, and now he has advanced liver disease, cirrhosis of the liver. He's in a final stage of liver disease. And you might be able to imagine how I felt when I sat in the doctor's office and he said, your husband has stage four liver disease, and I looked at that chart on the wall and I saw what stage four liver disease looked like. It's the most terrible feeling to have to know this person who is the center of my life on this earth could be gone from me.
something could happen. We didn't know what hepatitis C even meant. We're looking at stage four, when he doesn't even have any symptoms, he's just a little tired. Now, praise God that we found it right now. It's a miracle of the Lord that we found out by tests that we wouldn't have done ordinarily to find out that he really was very sick. But it's a very scary place to be. And you know, in the weeks since then, I can't even begin to tell you how comforting what I'm sharing with you right now has been and continues to be to me. He's probably going to start treatment next month, and the treatment is pretty miserable. They say it's kind of like going through low-grade chemotherapy. Even though it's not chemotherapy, he may lose hair, get very sick, be nauseated, be fatigued, get rashes, all kinds of terrible things that are, bottom line, going to make us very miserable this year. I'll be leaving immediately after the meetings here. I won't be around Sunday because I'm flying back right away to be with my husband and to help him with the kids and with everything that we are facing. We have to choose a treatment plan. I really would appreciate your prayers that God will give us wisdom and guide us as to what to do. But what I'm telling you here works. I'm telling you the truth that there is nothing bad, nothing truly bad that can happen to the person who's surrendered to Christ. Even if the worst happens, even if my husband dies, nothing truly bad can possibly happen to our family. Because as long as we are surrendered, we know how things will work out eternally. In the big picture of things, it's going to be fine. I will grow closer to God. He will grow closer to God. Our children will grow closer to God. And through everything, God's character will be vindicated. And the universe will see that God is a God of love in ways they never could have if they hadn't seen what sin does in the lives of people down here in this earth. So I can say I'm truly grateful for this trial. It may seem like it's holding back God's work in some ways. We won't be traveling around or speaking anymore, at least for this year, and until we can get a handle on this disease, he may end up having to have a liver transplant. We don't know all those things, but we know this. We know God is good. We know God gives only good gifts to his children. And as we accept this gift as what it is, a gift from God, an opportunity to understand his character in ways we never did before, we're going to grow into his image by faith. I know that's going to happen, and I'm so grateful to God. There are those moments that I, I struggle with fear. I think, Lord, I honestly can't even imagine that I could keep on breathing if I lose my husband. But I know the God who has given me the promises that I need. I don't have some of the promises I want right now. I'd love a promise in the Bible that says your husband will get well, nothing bad will happen, you're going to live a long and fruitful life together and walk right into heaven on the clouds. That promise isn't in the Bible. I don't have the promises I want. I have the promises I need, though. I have the promise that God will never leave me or forsake me. I have the promise that God will make all these things work together for good because we love him. And I don't know what the trial is that you're facing in your life. Probably it's not like mine. But when I say, what trial are you facing? There's probably something that comes to mind for you. Maybe several things that come to mind for you. And I want to ask you right now to take that trial to the Lord and ask him to change it from a curse into a blessing for you. If you have something like that that you want to hand over to the Lord right now, I ask you to raise your hand just between you and the Lord and tell him what it is. Lord, this is the thing that I'm giving to you. I'm asking you to turn it into a blessing. Take this trial and use it to transform me into your character. Use it as your most effective tool to make me like you. God is going to answer that prayer. God is going to take that gift and turn it into something that 10 years from now you'll look back and say, God, I'm so grateful that you took that and turned it around into something to teach me about your love, to teach me to become like you. I guarantee you, as long as you stay surrendered, if you cling to the hand of Christ and say, I will not let thee go except thou bless me, the more pressure the devil puts on you, the faster he'll press you close to Christ. Let's stand together as we pray for the Lord's blessing in each one of our trials right now. Lord Jesus, you knew when we were born the things that we were going to face, and you know the things that are still ahead of us now. And Lord, we thank you for those gifts. We thank you that because you knew we were going to suffer and you couldn't stop suffering from happening if you were going to be loving, 
You came down here and suffered beside us. You went through everything that we go through so that you can succor those that are tempted. You can be beside us and inside us, and you can use these things to transform us into your image. Lord, we give you these, these trials, these burdens that are on us, and we ask you that you will change them into your most effective tools to carve away what's evil, to carve away what's selfish in our characters. That when we see you coming in the clouds, we may be grateful, not just that you're wiping away all tears from our eyes, but that you allowed us to have these tears in this world. Bless our families, Lord. Bless our homes, even those who aren't here. You know, some of us have family members we wish were here, those who need to hear this message. And Lord, I pray that you will bring this message to those people who need to hear it and that you will use us as your mouthpieces. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of love, the gift of family, the gift of being changed into your image through these trials. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I know some of you will want to follow what happens with Dr. Parker's health this year and in the time that until we have things resolved. So um, you can also follow on our blog, willowbirds.blogspot.com. That's willow like a willow tree and birds like two sparrows. Um, willowbirds.blogspot.com. And I'll try to keep things updated there on how the Lord is leading in our lives and in his health and keep things posted for so you can know what to pray for.